You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. One hot April afternoon in 2007, I was leading my platoon on a patrol in the streets of Baghdad when I was shot and killed by a sniper bullet. Those words are not from a fiction novel. They're from a life-changing book called The Beauty of a Darker Soul, written by the man who was shot and killed by that sniper bullet. How can that be? You're about to find out in the next few minutes, directly from the man who died. His story is like no other story you've ever heard. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I've discovered that leaders are readers. And as a listener to this show, you have access as a free gift to any audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 180,000 titles from our sponsor, Audible. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power, choose the book that you want, download it for free, enjoy it, and keep it forever. Also, you will get a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. I'm excited to announce that I have created brand new content for you. It is an additional episode, a short one, about five to ten minutes long, and it will appear at least once a week. I call these episodes One Word Stories. Each episode will focus on a word, a common word that we all use, but it may be charged with meanings that are affecting our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Enjoy these episodes as mini shots of empowerment. Remember to keep your dialogue with the show alive. It enriches everyone. Send your responses, your comments, your requests to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail. Dot com. I'm excited to introduce Josh Mance, professional speaker, author, and CEO of Darker Souls, a clinical training and leadership consulting company tailored to the behavioral health and medical industries. Mr. Mance and his company specialize in helping people deal with trauma. Josh, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Louis, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Josh, the pleasure is mine. Today, we're not going to start at the beginning. Please describe what happened when you were shot. The day we were shot, uh, we've got some pretty strong reason to believe that it was an outside team uh, that came in to, uh, to hit us that day. Anyway, we got engaged by an enemy sniper that day. It was it was uh, a complex ambush, <clears throat> and uh, the bullet first severed the aorta of my senior non-commissioned officer, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper, and then it ricocheted in my thigh and severed my femoral artery. Uh, so, for for anyone who's who's watched movies like Black Hawk Down, uh, there's there's a, a scene where one of the soldiers is, is kind of bleeding out on a table for hours and hours on end and his artery is severed and they're trying to like capture that artery and pinch it off. That, that is precisely what happened to me, uh, in, in, in real life. And, um, you know, I went through a progression of a lot of really bizarre physiological symptoms, 
and, and but 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 ultimately, uh, you know, again, being conscious through this whole experience was what I look back on now as, as being the beauty of it. You know, I, I I was able to witness my my team just perform brilliantly, flawlessly in in the face of, of absolute chaos. And and the same for the medical team. You know, when when we got to the initial aid station, it, it like watching this medical team work, this trauma team, which I don't care if you're a military trauma team or your local ER, like man, they're 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 so forgotten about. <laughs> and and the, the the level of heroism that goes on in an ER every single day uh, is just something to reflect on because you know, th- those teams just, just come together and, and pull off these miracles. It, it was like watching a choreographed dance, mm. you know, in terms of how cohesively they work together, how calm they stayed under pressure. Uh, but, but even despite that, I could feel myself starting to die. Can you paint a picture of that moment for us? Yeah, so, so, so going down to this last, like, second or two, like literally the the point of transition from debt from life to death. Uh, the the only way that I can describe that is a moment of absolute and complete surrender uh, to something much greater than ourselves. And and through that surrender uh, came an overwhelming sense of peace. It, it was it was it was like every every positive, every negative, every good, every bad. All of it, all of it just vanished. And, and, it, and it was as if the spirit becomes part of everything and nothing at the same time. And, and, you know, if, if, there's, if there's ever an experience of feeling maybe like the absolute presence of God or the, the, the pure moment in Eastern traditions of, of absolute pure awareness, right? Man, that would be it. <laughs> it. It is. It was a. It was a moment. Uh, there. There was no fear. There was no anger. There was no nothing. It, it was. It was indescribable uh, in in many respects. And and I, you know, consciously consciously knew that I was I was dying. Right. And, and um, you know, did I? I flatlined for fifteen minutes. I I don't remember the fifteen minutes. Um, but then, you know, regain consciousness about two days later and, and, and to, to learn that. Well, here, I want to, I don't want to just jump over that. You flatlined for 15 minutes. And I remember an important, some important details in your book about that, that the attempts to revive someone when they flatlined, they usually give them up after how long? Well, you know, it, it kind of seems to shift and change more and more. But generally speaking, uh, you know, many doctors call it around the six minute mark. Right. Okay. Um, but because six minutes of being flatlined, no breathing, no pulse is typically the point where catastrophic brain damage starts to set in. And uh, so when when I woke it, you know, when, when they put a pulse back on me, like if I woke up at all. Uh, they expected catastrophic brain damage, and when I woke up, there was no trace of it—not a trace. You know, wow! I mean, fifteen minutes, guys. I mean, listeners, you get that? Doctors say at after six minutes, it's game over. Josh didn't just double that; he went three minutes beyond that to fifteen, and without brain damage. What were their reactions when they suddenly realized, oh, my God, 15 minutes and he's still alive or not still alive, but we brought him back to life. So one of the most uh, powerful moments of my life was, you know, long story short, but I I ended up going back to Baghdad uh, only about four and a half months later after this. I was pulling staples out of my leg with a girl. I was stopping at nothing to get back to my team. But uh you know, it's fortunate to be able to do that. But the, the the surprise for me when I got back to Baghdad is that that medical team was still there. And, you know, kind of we set up a surprise visit to go. You know, I had the opportunity to do something that few people ever get the opportunity to do. Thank the medical team that saved my life in person uh, in Baghdad, nonetheless. 
And uh, I asked that brigade surgeon one question. I was like, what, what possessed you guys to keep going for that long? You know, and what, why? And, and without hesitating, he gave me a three word response. He said, we never quit. And it's it, every time I tell that story today, it still gives me chills. Now, from a from a, a medical standpoint, you know, he as as um, almost almost metaphysical as this is, right? It, 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 there's the best way you can explain it on the medical side is that I, um, I, I I I flatlined while I was on the operating table. Uh, which was an advantage because they were able to start CPR and, and uh, you know, advanced cardio life support immediately. Uh, and, and that might have just kept enough blood running through the brain, enough oxygen to prevent that brain damage. But e- even that, it's, it's still hard, Lewis, because I, I probably lost the majority of the blood in my body by the time I got there uh, to begin with. So it, it was just absolutely heroic efforts on the medical team's part some of those details still continue to emerge. Um, you know, just a couple months ago, after I released my books, one of those medics just read it and uh, called me right away, and he said, "I, I want to give you a little bit more detail." <laughs> and I, and I, it, was, it was such a blessing of a conversation as I, I found out that day that you know, that, like I, I knew there was this guy named this this like 19 year old former football player named Tipton. I never, ne- always remembered him, right? He's the guy that I knew did CPR on me the entire time, right? You're talking 15 minutes of nonstop CPR, one guy doing it. And to anyone who's ever done live CPR before, like most people, even in the best of shape, are exhausted after three minutes. So he was able to, he was able to fill in more details and just tell me how far Tipton actually went that day. Like there was some kind of, I was on basically a cot. <laughs> this this is a very rogue uh, care facility with rudimentary equipment in the middle of Baghdad, and the, this cot for some reason was was elevated too high and they couldn't get it to adjust fast enough, so nobody could reach me except this guy named Tipton who happened to be about six foot five, two hundred and sixty pounds, former football player. And even then, he had to stand on a box, <laughs> a crate, in order to in order to get enough leverage to do it on me. And and they just said that he refused to take even the slightest break. He was pouring sweat the whole time, you know. And you can just you can just imagine this this just relentless effort from this team. And it, it's just man, if anything embodies the power of the human spirit, it's moments like that. Josh, thank you so much for sharing that. Now let's paint an early picture of you, the man who faced death and won. You're a decorated soldier who received the Purple Heart and Bronze Star with Valor while serving in combat in Iraq. Who are the two men who helped to shape who you are today? Lewis, that goes all the way back to to high school days. I'd say the two biggest influences on my life were my, my stepfather, uh, you know, my, my biological father died when I was very young and, uh, my stepfather, who was a police officer, uh, most of his career, uh, really had a, uh, an enormous influence on me in terms of, um, learning what it really meant to be, uh, involved in the service professions. Uh, and the second influence was uh, a gentleman named Sergeant Major Doug Vanderpool, who is a retired special forces Sergeant Major converted into one of my high school teachers after he retired. And uh, he's he's the one that really taught me about uh, many of the things that would be directly applicable in my career just, just a few years later, uh, which is, you know, more than anything else, uh, appreciating the power of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. What would you say were the most important life lessons that you got from each of these men? You know, from my from my stepfather, um, I, I had kind of a um, a misunderstanding of who he was. I, I for, for the longest time, and and kind of just thought of him as this kind of badass police officer who never lost a fight, and and you know had this kind of misperception as a kid. And he was he was a very intimidating fellow, <laughs> um, but 
when I started to do ride-alongs with him when I was a senior in high school and, and actually see him in action, it was the complete opposite. You know, he he resolves situations through empathy, through sympathy, through understanding, uh, and and w- without the use of, of force or violence or anything like that. And it, it completely changed the paradigm in terms of what's really important in handling these situations. Uh, Doug Vanderpool, the the special forces sergeant major, he cultivated a a deep uh, interest in me. Uh, in terms of the power of not only the human spirit, but the importance of humility, uh, of of understanding uh, foreign cultures, of understanding the language, and and you know this was just a couple years before 9/11. I mean, two years before 9/11, and the foreshadowing here couldn't be <laughs> more profound because it's those lessons, the power of language, the power of culture, the power of humility and empathy that would drive everything that I would do um, post 9-11. You know, I read the book, and uh, to my storytellers listening, it's a must-read book. It's gripping, uh, better than watching most things on Netflix. And uh, you will learn a lot about life from it. But what's interesting to me is that from reading the book and talking to you, I get this feeling that there are no accidents. I've always believed that, but it was really driven home to me in the book, and that you were being groomed for a higher purpose through everything that happened to you, starting with meeting and being influenced by these two men. Now, you talk in your book about counterinsurgency. Can you tell us what that means and what role did it play in your military life? Great question. (laughs) Um, And it's such an important question, because, you know, culturally, and, and this isn't anyone's fault, really, but uh, nor nor is this assigning any type of blame, but uh, counterinsurgency is considered to be the graduate level of warfare because of its complexity. And it is the heart of, it, it's the foundation of, of military operations today, uh, practically worldwide and, and uh, definitely over the last 10 years or so. And the interesting thing is that, that many people, when they think of combat and war, they, they think of these, uh, you know, very conventional fights like World War II, uh, you know, where there's a, a clear-cut enemy and, and you know, the, the force either comes home victorious or not. And, you know, d- just all the stigma surrounding that. And today it's, it's, it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, you know, in, in, in today's age, like certainly service members and soldiers – uh, must retain uh, a phenomenal level of tactical expertise, and they have to be able to to turn that switch on in a dime if they need to. Uh, and, and sometimes we do. But the heart of these operations, it's grounded in everything that I just mentioned: humility, empathy, uh, relationship building. Success today depends on our ability to 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 earn the trust of the local population. And help them help themselves. And that's an incredibly complex, uh, maddening at times uh, task that, that, that few people understand. Uh, even, in, even in military and political channels, like it's, it's not very well understood. So very complex environment that we're exposed to. Well, I mean, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that the majority of the people who go over to fight would resist that idea so you're absolutely right there's 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 been a resistance to 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 operating in this counterinsurgency environment right it's it is a war of paradoxes you know and in, in, instead of uh for, for example uh, you know if, if if you and i are driving down the street in baghdad and a roadside bomb goes off and that bomb kills me and you live Nine times out of ten, your your first reaction is going to be one of rage. It's going to be of fear. It's going to be of emotion, and and your your tendency is going to be to protect you and the rest of the force by firing back. But the problem is in this environment, what are you firing back at? You know, maybe innocent people in in a in a in a population that you know where you don't understand their language or their culture. So that does more damage than good. 
and and in in today's age, you know, we have to train very young people, 19, 20 years old, to suppress these incredible emotions of rage and not fire back. You know, in a, in a counterinsurgency environment, sometimes the best weapons do not shoot, and 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 sometimes the best reaction is no action, and 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 that 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 is contrary to everything that soldiers were trained to do. Um, it is. It, it takes a almost a transcendence of soul and spirit in order to be able to embody uh, the values that it takes to successfully operate in that environment. Yet our service members had to learn how to do it on the fly over the last decade, um, and, and it was, um, you know, a, kind of an, an incredible process and journey um, that took a lot of reinsurance uh, from a leadership perspective. Hmm. I certainly have never heard of that being applied, let's say, um, a lot anyway, in the Vietnam War. So you're, you're right. And the reason for that is it was a leadership failure. Uh, you know, what's, what's interesting about Vietnam should have been fought like a counterinsurgency. Um, Westmoreland, the president, senior military and political leaders refused to fight that type of a war. They, they, they were caught in uh, executing an algorithm of their past, right? The U.S. was kind of a victim of its own success. It was very successful in World War II, conventional, overwhelming firepower. The industrial machine of the United States doing more, 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 more was, was, was supposed to work, quote unquote, in Vietnam. And that led to a bunch of just endless carping bombings, endless casualties, right? And the refusal of the leadership to listen uh, to the lower echelon leaders who were trying to activate counterinsurgency operations, right? And, and the U.S. kind of just swept Vietnam under the rug. They, they burned all the documents afterwards. They, they, they chalked that one up as a loss, right? And, and then suddenly in Desert Storm, they came back with this conventional firepower and just crushed it, you know, took out the fourth largest army in the world in, in like, you know, a couple days. And, uh, you know, once again, it, 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 it kind of spawned this being a victim of their own success. They thought that counterins or they thought that conventional warfare was the answer. Fast forward to 9-11 in Iraq, and, and, and right after the initial invasion, right, a power vacuum ensued. Multiple different organizations started to step up to try to take power and undermine the existing government. And this is where all of these insurgencies spawned. Mm. Uh, so we were not prepared uh, to fight this, this conflict. Uh, in fact, as uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Nagel says in, in, in his book, he's very influential uh, in the counterinsurgency world, you know, Nagel was in a very unique position uh, in, in his career, very, tied very closely to General Petraeus before Petraeus was in command uh, over there. And what was interesting is Nagel, Petraeus, uh, and a very small team of a couple other folks actually wrote this this new counterinsurgency field manual because they knew that the, that the need for it was there, that we were losing the war in Iraq and we needed to take a completely different approach. But Secretary Rumsfeld was so adamantly against the, this counterinsurgency concept that he refused to allow that word to even be used. Wow. Right? Wow. Mm, so it's mm. a really interesting dynamic here. Like, like Petraeus and uh, a very small team actually were almost running an internal insurgency against our own people so we could fight the right kind of war. Preventing more casualties, you know, which would ultimately prevent casualties, keep people safer on both sides. And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Bush replaced uh, Rumsfeld with with Gates, who was very counterinsurgency minded. Uh, Petraeus was sent in to save the day, which he did. Uh, and, and that kind of unlocked a lot of uh, a completely new pathway in, 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 in Iraq that unfortunately was a little bit too late uh, for, for, for public interest to, to be maintained. But. That's just a brief history of it. <laughs> wow, that's that's fascinating, Josh. What is the Thayer method, and what role did it play in your development as a person and a soldier? So the Thayer method uh, is the academic technique that's taught at West Point, uh, the United States Military Academy. 
And the, the the interesting thing about West Point is is they reverse the typical academic method. Uh, you know, in most cases, you you uh, you know the 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 teacher instructs the material, and then you you go back and you study it, and and at some point you're tested. What happens at West Point is you're assigned all of the material beforehand. You have to internalize it and read it on your own. And then as soon as you set foot through the door of the classroom, you're tested on it. <laughs> and it's only after the test that the teacher instructs the material. And the the, the reason for that is it, it, over time, after four years of doing that, it teaches you how to think, not what to think. Hmm. Uh, it it teaches you how to pick up a manual of very complex information and learn it on your own and to also be able to present it to other people uh, to the best of your ability. So you don't really know or understand the effect that that has on you when you're at West Point going through the process. But later in this counterinsurgency environment, this highly complex environment of, of, of the Middle East, now, we had to do a lot of figuring things out on our own, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so that that entire developmental process at the academy couldn't have been more uh, profound. Yeah, I get you because basically it's teaching you self responsibility. So you're not going to be just doing something by let me look it up on page thirty five. No, let me respond to what's happening now and figure this out. Big difference. Precisely. Yeah. Why did you choose to study Arabic? And I understand you've developed quite a mastery of Arabic, yes? Yeah, Arabic is a beast of a language, <laughs> you know, and, and fluency is a very fluid term, as you, as you know, right? But, but um, uh, yeah, throughout my career, I, I got pretty, pretty fluent by the end. Um, but in, in, in short, you know, 9-11 happened my freshman year at the academy. And, uh, you know, going back to those high school influences of, of Doug Vanderpool, uh, I, I just instinctually knew uh, the importance of language in terms of our ability to, to really inherently connect with people, to empathize with them, uh, and to demonstrate respect for their culture. And, uh, you know, made the decision to major in Arabic because of that, right? I, I knew I was going into the infantry, uh, so I, I knew I would be kind of people-facing, and uh, as it turned out, Lewis, that that language is the most powerful weapon that I could have possibly carried in the Middle East. Um, if I if I had to choose between, and this may sound crazy, but if I had to choose between carrying a weapon or knowing the Arabic language, I would take language every time. And well, uh, it doesn't sound crazy to me. I mean, look, my show is called "Change Your Story, Change Your Life," and Part of it is that I have always appreciated the incredible power of language. It creates emotion. It um, it motivates people. It can lead. Well, you know that the old cliche is true. The pen is mightier than the sword because <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's it look. Is. Hitler Hitler used language to whip an entire nation into a monstrous frenzy and put into them beliefs that were horrific. And it was right. only after that that the language had worked and the beliefs were there that then they were willing to pick up the guns and go and destroy people. But the language had to precede it. Absolutely. You know? Now... I'm fascinated by this one. One of your teachers, Colonel Mark Conroe, taught you the Al, is it Al Fatiha? Is that how you pronounce it? Al Fatiha. Al Fatiha. Stands for the, it means the opening. Yes, uh. it's the first passage of the Quran. And why did that teacher, you know, teach it to you? Yeah, so, so Mark was. Uh, one of my primary Arabic instructors the entire way through the academy. And he was, he was a foreign area officer in the Middle East. Uh, and this is a foreign area officers, very, uh, very small community within the military of, 
uh, you know, strategic-minded thinkers, uh, successful officers, and and uh, who who really have kind of a niche for this type of work. Uh, very highly trained, and and basically what what the foreign air officer does is they're a bridge between the foreign governments, uh, their their militaries, their political environments, and, and ours, right? And they and they facilitate this cooperative environment. Um, so with his experience in the Middle East of, of, of doing that, he knew uh, the importance of of language, you know. And, and any foreign air officer will tell you that. Or they're all extensively trained in language. And uh, Mark told us, like, very first year that, that learn al-Fatiha verbatim, be able to recite it, because the level of respect that you'll earn by just demonstrating respect for their culture, for their religion, right? It will cut through any uh, stigma that they have over Americans. It will it will cut through all those barriers and bust them down instantly. And, uh, I man, I can't tell you how many times I have thrown out al-Fatiha in the Middle East just to, to cut through that initial fear uh, that that many uh, Iraqis would have towards us, you know, just it, it's it's scary, you know. I mean, you're you got to empathize with them, right? I mean, think about what it would be like if the tables were turned, and and you know, people wearing full blown SWAT gear and weapons and and armor and tanks and you know, they're rolling up to your door. You know, I, I mean that, and they can't speak your language, and you don't have the ability to communicate with them, right? So, so yeah, yeah, no, it's powerful. I can imagine what you just said about reversing the role. Imagine a foreign soldier; you don't expect them to speak English. The guy opens his mouth, and what comes out is, um, let's say, the beginning of the Constitution of the United States, and it's and he knows it, you know, he knows it verbatim. I mean, that would change. Right. That would change something in the right. dynamic. Yeah. It would at least sort of change the, you know, it, it, it would lessen it, right? It would, it would open a door and, and 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 be able to facilitate this true human connection. Yeah. Right? Which, Actually, know, better than that, better than the Constitution, the, the Declaration of Independence. There you go, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, God, you know, what? what? What is he saying? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, and, you know. Hopefully, the person is saying it so that you're aware that he's not mocking it. He's showing some respect to it. Could you just say the first few words of it, maybe the first line or two? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it starts as a, a Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah Rabbi Alameen, right? And then, and then there's there's probably another minute of, of language behind that that I might butcher today because it's what, been a what is that? What does that mean, what you just said? Um, in the name of God, most merciful, most mighty is is, is kind of basically the, the gist of how that starts, right? It's giving praise to uh, to, to God, mm. right? In their way, and <clears throat> that's beautiful. Your rules of engagement with counterinsurgency, where you used compassion and empathy as weapons of warfare, sometimes demanded that you put people's lives on the line in unexpected ways. Could you talk a bit about that? For, for me in a leadership role, I had to, there were times where I had to put the lives of my team on the line, literally, for a t-shirt. May, may I recount uh, something that I remember from the book, your book? Oh, please, please. Because it's in relation to this, you were talking about the day when one of your men forgot to bring the t-shirts and you had to make a decision. Do I send these people back, this guy and some other soldiers back to get them? And the trip back to get them was on a very dangerous road that might have gotten them killed. Or do we just continue without them? And you decided to send them to get the t-shirts and getting them made all the difference in the world in creating a peaceful communication with people later on. You, you paraphrase that perfectly, Lewis. You know, and that that decision still haunts me to this day. Mm. It's it's decisions like that 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 haunt me. The potentiality of what could have been. Mm -hmm. Those types of uh, almost irresolvable 
moral, ethical dilemmas are, are prevalent almost on an everyday basis in, the, in that environment. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but you're right on like that, that morning, like we had been, I'd been shaping up a relationship with the local police force um, and they finally agreed. And this, this was a lot of Arabic talking to them. It was tons of trust building. It was weeks and weeks, probably months of effort leading up to it. And I finally got them to agree to go on a patrol with me, uh, which that may sound like minuscule. Like, what are you talking about? The police should be going on patrol. Well, of course, but you got to remember these guys were um, not what we think of as a typical police force, right? They, there is riddled with corruption. Uh, the, the the police were were un, you know, not very well paid. They were not respected like the police force we have here. Uh, they couldn't even find fuel for their own vehicles sometimes, mm. right? <laughs> so, I mean, think of the irony of that. You know, you're, you're in one of the most oil-rich countries in the world, and, and their own police force can't even find gas for their cars because they can't afford it, mm. right? Mm. So, you know, and, and anyone wearing a police uniform, if they weren't corrupt, they were they were a huge target for the insurgents, right? So there's they were either crippled with fear or they were corrupt, and, and that's kind of where we were at at that time. Uh, so so for them to be able to, to join us for that patrol was a huge thing, you know. Um, and it's one that I, I couldn't screw up, right? And, and Right. Not just for, for us, but, you know, why was it so important? Because I needed to, I needed to help those police gain back credibility. So that, so that the Americans weren't over there for 20, 30 years, right? I, I, we, we, need to, we need them to be the face of the operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that joint effort, you know, when, when myself and the police were standing on the back of a truck bed handing out, handing out these shirts and school supplies, that has a very profound psychological impact on the community. Mm-hmm. And even though it's just barely nudging the ship in the right direction, that's the kind of thing that changes – lives right that's the kind of thing that changes stories mm-hmm. you know? so i love it thanks for sharing that now what is the significance of these words the streets will run red and what was your first-hand experience with their meaning man that is of all the man i, I there, there's there's you're reminding me here of just some of the these stories that were captured and, and sometimes I for, I forget about them, even though they're in the book. <laughs> I, like this one is one of my probably most profound, uh, most meaningful to me. It's, it's, there's this area called Obedi, um, which was an extreme, no, thought to be, thought to be uh, an extremely hostile, extremely dangerous area of Baghdad. Um, it was in our area of responsibility, yet we, we hadn't progressed out that far yet. Uh, and we received a report one day from apparently Obeidi uh, and their leadership that said, if the Americans walk through uh, downtown Obeidi, the streets will run red with blood. Uh, so, you know, when when I get a information like that, you know, and my team, we all kind of looked at each other and, and said, we need to go to Obeidi, <laughs> you know, we, I mean, without hesitation, we were like, well, you know, and it wasn't like trying to draw in a firefight or anything like that, but we needed to find out one, if this was a credible threat, if it was real, uh, or more importantly, find out what the tension was all about, right. And, and see if we could, uh, find ways to reduce that tension and rebuild that partnership. Uh, you know, and, and that day, uh, we approached that as probably the most, uh, planned out tactical operation that we've done uh, in in that in that entire deployment because you know with that kind of a threat we were pretty we were leaning towards the fact that this could get uh, very dangerous very quick you know and, and and almost going in with the expectation of a firefight it's not what we wanted uh, but but we prepared for that and sure enough you know getting there I, I step out of the vehicle and we get all these hostile confusing looks you know Americans hadn't been there in years uh, you know and I I just remember like that initial picture of this place you know I see I see teenage kids standing knee deep in raw sewage 
uh, trying to fix their broken sewage systems. I see poverty everywhere. You know, we get all these hostile looks. And sure enough, when I go past saying salam alaikum, right, and I start talking to them in their own language, all of those hostile looks instantaneously turned into smiles, <laughs> right? And we walked right through the center of that city. Um, not, a, not a single drop of blood was spilled. In fact, it was the complete opposite. Uh, they were probably the nicest, most engaging Iraqis that I met while over there. Um, and, and again, it, it started to, you know, from that point forward, we were able to cultivate that relationship and open up that area. Uh, largely because of the power of language, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, well, you know, it, you know, you know, what's profound about this. I mean, let's take it out of the context of, uh, your experience in the war for a moment and just apply it to people's lives who might be listening to this today. It goes beyond language. It's the, the fact that the language you were using created a real an authentic rapport with the people you were talking to so that they felt understood and perhaps appreciated that is the secret behind true salesmanship yep <laughs> you know i mean it's so powerful i mean you were seeing it in a context where it literally meant life or death literally but when people take it out of that context and they're saying, well, how do I learn how to get more sales? Right. Listen to some of this and apply it to your world because it's still about people connecting first with other people. And they won't be open to what you're selling unless you've connected with them on an authentic level. Very powerful stuff. And that's a very powerful analogy and summary. I couldn't agree with you more. Because uh, it's all about relationships. It's it's about empathy, uh, humility, and and um, uh, you know cultivating those kind of traits and values uh, to to drive true human connection, genuine relationships. Uh, I, I think it's it's arguably the most important thing in in life. You talk in your book about what you believe is humanity's greatest defense against evil. What is that in your mind? In order to find the strength to trust in the good of people, right? In order to not uh, stigmatize the entire local population uh, and and fall into that cognitive trap of believing that 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 all of them are responsible for the violence that's happening over there, the, our ability to to trust in the inherent good of people is possibly our greatest defense wow. against against evil. And, th and that's, a, that's a very difficult thing to do, right? It takes a lot of moral and ethical courage to do that when uh, a very small percentage of insurgents, and I mean maybe, maybe 5% of that population are the violent extremists that drive all of these problems, right? It's, it's the, 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 the ability to be able to resist wrapping everyone in Iraq, everyone in the Middle East up into the category of those 5%, right? But, but because... 90% of the people in this world, I don't care what country you're in, where, where you are in the world, people are just people, right? Mm -hmm. They want to live their lives without the threat of their kids being, you know, injured or wounded by a mortar round going off when they're playing soccer. Mm. You know, they, they, they don't want to pick up arms. They don't want to be violent. You know, the, the, the majority of the people over there who did participate in the insurgency were coerced strongly coerced into doing, you know, you're talking, remember, insurgents don't play by the rules, you know, and, and they do the most horrific things. They, they, they rape, they torture, they kidnap, they kill, they, they, they have burned little children alive in ovens just to, to terrorize the local population into complying with them. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And, and that, that fear, right. Most people over there do what they do just out of self-preservation, right. Just out of desperation. And, and over time, as that counterinsurgent force is able to uh, secure the population and prevent the insurgents from being able to do things like that, that is what progressively over time uh, builds that trust and allows that population to kind of come back to who they really are. You know, but, but when you're, when you're, you know, it, it's, 
that's an easier, it's easier said than done, you know, especially when you're young and you, and you might not understand the strategic implications of everything, you know, the, the, the it's it's hard when people around you, your best friends, are, are are getting killed. When you're putting your life on the line for your families and and their, their spouses and their kids are, are at stake, right? It's it's you know there's the, there's this tension between self preservation and the preservation of my team versus that that extreme sense of selflessness towards a far greater population of whom we don't even really know. You know, so so it's it's um. The why behind this has to be crystal clear and internalized, hmm. and and that's that's what is um, it's a process to get to that. Josh, I just had an idea. I want to suggest that instead of covering your second life, your life that began after you were revived, which we were going to do on this podcast, that we save that. And that we do a follow-up interview very soon and share those valuable lessons and insights with our listeners. What do you think? I'd be honored to do that. This is, uh, you know, I do a, a lot of interviews and speaking, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm always happy to do it, but I, I really appreciate uh, where this conversation went and your insight into it, you know, and, and that's that's kind of what I love about the the spontaneity of this and and bringing your perspective to the table here. I think is going to pull a lot of great stuff out next round. Thank I'd you. Love Thank you. I we're not done. Um, one of the things that really struck me when I read your description of that moment before you died, where there was surrender, no fear a sense of peace. You even used the word, you said you felt safe, and you said that in the book. What struck me was everything I've read about mysticism, the mystics train themselves or they develop the discipline to experience that mystical, what they call union with God. And that union with God is what you have just described as dying. Hmm. And then I thought about how many people think about sex this way. Huh. Why is sex such a powerful force? Why do people um, even endanger themselves and their reputations for a moment of sexual ecstasy? Right. What is sexual ecstasy? If it's complete, it's not different from what you're describing. It's a moment of transcendence of self in a moment of rapture, losing oneself, therefore dying. Brother, that was that was so well said. In, in fact, you know, it is a it is a a sense of dying. Right. And, and I'll tell you that. You know the emotional journey after this experience, right? I, and it, it sounds so positive right now what I just described, but but let's remember that for for me there is there is a ten year journey of learning what that meant, what to do with that, how to integrate it into my current life, and th this is kind of where we stem into this trauma discussion, right? The, the what, what I experienced there was, was and what we're talking about here, the mysticism, right? It's, it's, it's a peak experience. Right, right. Right? It, 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 and a peak experience is something that can, that can punch through the current uh, narrative of the world that, the, 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 that, that we have. And, and each of ours is a little bit different, right, based on how we're raised. But we have these constructs of what we believe the world is and how it should work. And when these peak experiences happen, they can bust us through. It can broaden our emotional bandwidth and our cognitive. It, right? it can give us this new level of spirit and transcendence. Certainly, a near-death experience can prompt that, right? The mysticism and certain religious rituals can prompt it. Um, certain psychedelic experiences can do it, you know, like, like dimethyltryptamine, DMT, uh, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, also happens to be in endogenously produced within our own brains 
uh, you know, which is a whole other talk. You've got rites of passage, right? Like these extreme events that we still see in tribal communities and, and, and certain places in culture, right? Dream states, certain dreams, uh, when you can learn to pay attention to them, when you learn how to unlock their meaning, right? And I'm not talking about foo-foo stuff. I, I, we could get into what I really mean about dream work sometime. But there is, I, I have had dreams that were as powerful as the near-death experience in terms mm. of the way that I view life. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many, but some, right? Now, to my listeners, that, thank you for that. To my listeners, what I want you to think about is this. Josh just experienced, I mean, he was shot. He died. He literally died. And he experienced something that was transcendent and um, a form of ecstasy in a way. Yeah. Now, you think about that and ask yourself the question, what were the consequences for him after he regained consciousness and came back fully to life? And how did that, those consequences play out in the next 10 years of his life? And you won't find out until the next interview. We're not going to give it away. <laughs> now, but um, to arouse even a little more interest, perhaps, in curiosity, who was Fearless Marlin, and what did he tell you? <laughs> so Marlin Harper, uh, Marlin Harper was the, the soldier who was shot by the same bullet uh, that I was, uh, you know, it, it severed Marlin's aorta. Marlin ended up dying, uh, unfortunately, but, uh, Marlin was not a couple weeks before that, you know, like I, I, I met Marlin a couple months prior. And one thing I noticed about Marlin and the reputation he had first, he was, he was the most respected, uh, soldier in that unit, the most experienced, uh, he, he essentially raised everybody and he was kind of the, the that, that archetypal image of what a non-commissioned officer should be. Um, and, but he, he was fearless, right? He was on his sixth deployment and our biggest threat by far, by far was roadside bombs. Uh, we got hit with roadside bombs almost every day. <laughs> and, um, uh, which is violent things that could, I mean, you get exposed to one of those and, and you know what I mean. I mean, it will throw a 20 ton vehicle off the road and you're talking something the size of a cinder block. And it, it it's, Marlon had no fear of roadside bombs. Like he would actually get, get out and, and walk right up to him thinking, you know, if there was a suspected uh, roadside bomb, he'd walk up and kick it and be like, no, we're good. And, and just had this incredible intuition that, that he fully trusted but when it came to sniper attacks and sniper threats, Marlin turned into a different person, and and he almost shut down. Like, and one night I, I so 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 no fear of our primary threat, but sniper attacks, which were far far less prevalent, far less of a threat, far less common. Marlin was petrified of me, and and one night I, I asked him about that. Not a few weeks before he was killed. Before I was killed, <laughs> and I said, "So, Marlon, what's up with you and roadside bombs, man? Why, why, uh, why are you fearless? You know, why do you act like this?" And it, he just sits back in his chair and he smiles and he, he turns to me and says, "I already got my call, in, sir, and it's not a roadside bomb." And then he turned back to his computer and kept working. And I, it, it was such a spooky moment. <laughs> I got chills that I couldn't, I didn't even want to ask him anymore. It was one of those things where you just have to take it in. Um, so, you know, and then sure enough, <clears throat> killed a couple weeks later by a sniper. And I, I have to wonder if, if there was some sort of premonition there. Um, it's powerful, man. I already got my calling. Yep. I mean, wow. What gets even spookier is that you put a tattoo on your arm. And what did that tattoo say? Yeah, I had, um, ironically, before I was shot, I had this tattoo put on my arm that, that basically was a, a line from a poem. 
of, of a poem that I read when I was over there. And it, 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 was, it was a poem written by a prisoner of war uh, who basically was, was really struggling during captivity with the concept of God and faith. And, and he wrote this poem as a tribute to Ares, the god of war. And one of the lines is, thou need not swerve the bullet. And I, I originally being 22 years old, I, I kind of got that tattooed on my arm because it, it sounded kind of pretty bravado, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, just bring it, you know? We don't need to swerve the bullet. And sure enough, you know, I get tagged by this sniper not a month later. So, that, you know, moral of the story there is don't tempt the war gods. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they are probably real. And you were asking them to visit you with the words, Thou need not swerve the bullet, tattooed on your arm. Josh, what final words can you leave our listeners with to whet their appetite for the topic of our next interview, your second life after you conquered death? I had to learn to accept the death of my old self before I could fully live in the present moment. Whoa, I love that. Thank you. One last thing. How can people contact you? <laughs> uh, yeah, best way is, is uh, www.darkersouls.com. Thank you so much, Josh. Hey, thank you, Liz. It was a pleasure. This was great. And thank you, storytellers, for spending this very special time today with me and Josh Mance. I consider myself privileged and honored to have met Josh and to hear his story, to have him share the intimate details of a story that is so rare, that is so far beyond anything that we normally hear in the course of our day, in the course of our lives, and to be able to take meaningful lessons from his words, from his story, and allow them to enrich me, you allow them to enrich you, and then collectively for us to take this message out into the world or what we receive from this message out into the world and enrich the lives of others. Please pay this forward. Let your friends and other people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Always remember that there's a free gift waiting for you at that website, it's a downloadable free ebook entitled Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Josh, well, obviously covered so much ground, went into such profound places in the human experience that we can reflect on many, many different things. But I think you'll agree that one of the, the core messages, in fact, the core message that has informed his life, that actually helped to save his life numerous times, and that probably contributed to his experience of coming back from death, that core message is to approach everyone in the world with a sense of openness, compassion, understanding, and trust, and to put aside the stories that we've been given that are powerful judgments, that are prejudices about other people, and to be willing to start with this in mind, that everyone has an, an essence of good in them, that at the core, all human beings are good, that all, at the core, all human beings want peace. They want good things for themselves and others. And of course, Josh did that 
in circumstances that for some would be impossible. He did it in an environment where he was facing what has been defined as the enemy. He brought compassion, understanding, a sense of empathy, and that profoundly affected his life, his death and subsequent rebirth, and the life that he lives today. Talking about the life that he lives today, in a few weeks, I'll be interviewing Josh again. And you won't want to miss that second part of his story that is literally about his second life. And no matter what you're imagining, I'm sure that you're going to discover things there that you never, never expected about his journey back and the person that he created, the story that he created and that he's now living into in the world. In the next week, consider this. Look into your own life. Are there areas where you still hold very strong judgments that you very rarely, if ever, question? Judgments about other people that are powerful, that are negative? Be willing to put them aside, to do as they say, to have a beginner's mind, an innocence, a trust. And to help you do that, start by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.